Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were... Very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today is Dr. Kaz Ross, a lecturer and coordinator in Asian studies at the University of Tasmania. Uh, and she has an interest in China and the far right. Thanks for joining us, Kaz. Hi, Cam. Hi, Andy. Well, I guess first things first, uh, the big global geopolitics story of the week is uh, Bunnings Nari Warren and uh, the sovereign citizen Karen. And uh, you wrote a little thing about this for the conversation explaining sovereign citizens. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what actually happened there? Yeah, so Bunnings was subjected to an onslaught of mask-avoiding customers, and the first who really hit the news was uh, someone who's been dubbed Karen. You know, it's not her real name, but she refused to wear a mask, and then she confronted the staff, and she made a few claims as to why she didn't need to wear a mask. In, there's two interviews of her doing this, and in the first one, she's saying, well, you're discriminating against me because I'm a living woman and you know the United Nations Human Rights says that you can't discriminate against women you're discriminating against me but in the uh, second in, uh, second video where she's talking to the police she's talking very clearly about how she, you know she doesn't need to follow the laws that the laws uh, don't apply to her because she is this uh, living person or living woman so she's claiming that she is a sovereign and therefore not bound by the laws of the Australian Government Corporation. What's the significance of referring to oneself as a living woman as opposed to simply a woman? Yeah, well, or as opposed to what, a zombie or a dead woman or a potentially dead woman because she's not wearing a mask in a pandemic. Basically, the sovereign citizens believe that everyone is born sovereign and that they enter into a contract with governments as corporations. So if they call themselves a living person, they're not an artificial bound by contract entity. And this is why they try to get police or any law people that they engage with to recognize them as a living person. So and um, this has led to some ludicrous situations. There was a truck driver in Queensland who was pulled over by police for crossing over the border from New South Wales and not showing ID. And one of the reasons why they don't show ID is they think they can be tricked into this contract. If you show your ID or you give your ID, ID and your, where you live and your name, you might be seen to be bound by a contract and you've given up your sovereign rights to be outside the law. So this guy refused to give his ID. 
the police officer pulled him over and he kept saying to the police officer, am I a living man? Am I a man? And the officer's response was brilliant. He said, look, mate, it's 2020. What do you identify as? (laughs) So he was thinking about am I a man in a different kind of context. But basically what they're trying to do is to say if they recognize as a living person, that means they're not sucked into a contract with the government and so they're not bound by any laws or fines or regulations, actually. I've been enjoying a lot of them lately have had uh, been putting up videos of themselves being pulled over for having unregistered vehicles. And they say, well, you know, it was registered. It's showing up in your system as unregistered. So how can it not be registered? It's clear, clearly registered in the system. Yeah. So this is one of the main characteristics of the sovereign citizens, the SovSits. They have an endless capacity for nitpicking over ridiculous interpretations of the law. And often you'll find one of the common features of the videos uh, with them is the deep size on behalf of the police <laughs> and uh, shop assistants and anybody who's got to deal with them because they will nitpick everything. Well, I'm registered. You know, the car's registered. Well, it's not because you haven't paid your registration fee, but it's in your system, so therefore it's registered. So they don't believe in paying registration fees, having a license. They say that the only reason they would need a license would be if they were engaged in driving. Now, you might think somebody who's behind the wheel of a vehicle and they're travelling on a road might be driving. That is not the case. They are travelling, which is not driving. Driving is when you do it for an income. And they do accept that people driving for an income should have a licence. Anybody else is freely able to travel without needing a licence because they are travelling freely. So they'll say, I'm not driving, and they're sitting in the car behind the wheel having just been pulled over. So they don't believe in paying for fines. They don't believe in paying the license fee, the vehicle registration. They don't believe in paying rates on their, on their property either. How has, I mean, these are, you know, there are a number of different stories, uh, related to sovereign citizens in Australia, but there appears to be, um, these concepts have found renewed popularity. Uh, with those who are, you know, opposed to wearing masks and so on. Can you speak to how sovereign, these concepts have entered into this discussion and where they actually came from? So I think that the sovereign citizen movement has been bubbling along for decades, but why it's suddenly come to the forefront of our attention is because of the mask wearing and the refusal to mask wear. So I think what's happened is during the pandemic, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-mask wearing um, general conspiracy type people have latched onto the framework provided by the sovereign citizens because they're pretty keen on providing templates of documents and how to declare yourself a sovereign citizen and declare yourself out of the legal system and so on and so forth. So I think that a number of these anti-vaxxers and anti-mask wearers, you wouldn't really call them sovereign citizens per se, but they're using the tools that sovereign the sovereign citizens provide to deal with the law, provides a framework. The sovereign citizens themselves, of course, the most famous ones would be the Bundy family on the Bundy Ranch in America, where they do not recognize the authority of the federal government at all. And they took over, you know, a nature reserve and they uh, destroyed some 
some sacred sites there in the nature reserve and they had an armed standoff with authorities. So that's actually the sort of the origins of it, these free man on the land. We're not subject to property taxes. Uh, we're not subject to federal intervention and federal laws. So someone like um, Eamon Bundy, we might think of him as on the extreme right, but recently he's come out in support of Black Lives Matter in Portland because he is against uh, federal government overreach and intervention. And with those federal agents being sent to Portland to protect federal monuments, Eamon Bundy had said, no, no, um, you know, we need to to uh, counteract this and we need to stand with Black Lives Matter to fight against this. That's that's led to some criticism from within his own camp because normally white supremacists wouldn't really be supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. But in this case, he's saying it's because we all hate the feds. That's also incredibly confusing because the main federal agency that he has a problem with is the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. <laughs> Yeah, really good point there. So I think that the sovereign citizens here, you know, what we're calling sovereign citizens, they're kind of like sovereign citizens light, really. The the real sovereign citizens we have in Australia that have been doing it are people like Wayne Glue, who, you know, the retired police officer who lost his property because of refusing to pay rates. Uh, here in Tasmania, there's been a family that lost their farm and their business um, because they refused to pay rates, and that was for religious reasons. And it's had a very bad impact on the town that they live in because they ran the honey shop in their town. It was a big tourist attraction. So these sorts of people in Australia, they're just – sometimes they're called vexatious litigants because they're in the courts for years and years and years. I even wonder, could we even say that Prince Leonard – of the uh, Principality of the Hutt River, maybe he was sort of one of our first sovereign citizens when he, you know, you know, rejected tariffs and then declared his his own separate micronation. I think he was sort of operating on a very similar basis in that the thing that he felt gave his micronation legitimacy was that you know there was some form that you know some bureaucrat ticked off on where they basically admitted that he had a kingdom. <laughs> and so then he went, well, you've conceded that I have a kingdom, so we can proceed from there. And, of course, they never agreed with that, but it was just one little thing written in the margins of, of a form that did it all. Yeah, look, I think the thing with the sovereign sits is because there's not one leader, um, and as you would know, Cam, that there are a couple of true kings of Australia <laughs> within the sovereign sit movement. So there's not one leader, there's not one doctrine, there's not even one ridiculous quasi-legal form to fill in. I do note, though, after a Facebook page I'm associated with published the Karen in Bunnings video, and we had 45,000 comments on that video, that some people told us about how they worked in banks and other institutions, and they were constantly dealing with these sovereign citizen types who want to get out of late fees or some kind of fee. And in the end, one person told us that the legal part of their bank produced a letter which they sent to the sovereign citizens, which is, well, you recognised our authority when you signed the contract to get your mortgage. So if you're not recognising it now, that means that you fraudulently got a mortgage. So which is it? Either pay the fees or be charged with fraud. And that tended to sort them out. So, you know, I think some, sometimes maybe people who call themselves sovereign sits are just jumping on a bandwagon to get out of some fines or some fees. Um, yeah. Who knows how genuine they are. 
I think it's often very attractive to people who find themselves in a tough financial spot where there's this answer it's provided. This is like, oh, actually, you don't need to go bankrupt. There's this thing that can get you out of it all if you just use the right words. Uh, I noticed there was one of the sort of main legal advisors of these groups uh, has had a few court cases. Uh, he didn't pay his taxes for something like 10 years, and he also owed some amount of money to a bank. And he tried to argue in court uh, that because of fractional reserve banking, the idea that you know there's more money in circulation than there is physical money, uh, because of that, money doesn't really have any value. And so how can anyone owe money, really? And that was, of course, thrown out. The judge said, look, we have to operate in this courtroom. We have to operate in the reality that we live in. We can't operate in some totally different reality. Maybe that could be safe for a uh, philosophy tutorial or something. I mean, I'm also thinking most of these stories probably end in tears, yeah? Yeah, look, I think, yeah, eventually they do because eventually Wayne Glue loses his land and loses his house, right? So people lose their farms. They lose their properties. They face their fines. The fines don't just go away. So I think the whole thing's been supercharged in the corona era because of the spreading of conspiracies and deep state and all that kind of stuff, you know, anti-authority kind of stuff. So the 5G, the anti-5G mob, you know, they're pretty keen on sending in these letters or the anti-vaxxers. If I just send in the letter three times and it's been, you know, authorised by a JP three times and, hey, that's it, I'm off the hook. Or the, uh, the, in some ways, in some ways I kind of have a bit of admiration for them because they are constantly saying things like, this, these mask laws are not a law because the law's got to go to parliament three times and it has to get royal assent and then it's got to go to a referendum. So they have a kind of naive faith in the power of the people and the importance of a people's voice in the political system. They're just completely deluded about how that all works. But, they do really believe that we, the people, should be able to have some say in how we're governed, and at least they're politically engaged. The the other reason I wanted to discuss the soft sits with you is because it is, I mean, it has its roots in the, the far right, but it's something that uh, people on the left are not immune from, uh, and certainly that there are some sovereign citizen grifters who prey on the indigenous community, for example, where there's this whole other idea of sovereignty that they're putting this weird thing over the top of. And I guess what I would say is if you're looking for legal advice, there's a lot of people out there offering free legal advice that is correct. If someone is charging you, you know, $100 to find out how to get out of a parking fine, you should think carefully about where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. And a few grifters have moved in on the no wearing masks business as well. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We are talking to Dr. Kaz Ross about sovereign citizens and China. Meanwhile, outside of Nari Warren, there's some other stuff going on in the world. I'm guessing you've been following uh, Steve Bannon's War Room Pandemic podcast. Yeah, look, sadly for my sins, I've listened to a few dozen of the uh, War Room Pandemic. It's a very painful daily podcast that's been going on since the middle of last year uh, from Steve Bannon with a focus on China. But uh, recently, he's actually been uh, podcasting from the Falkirk Centre, and it's been this um, Freedom Summit at the Falkirk Centre, 
And you may not have heard of the Falkirk Centre, but it's uh, Jerry Forwall's uh, Liberty University. So Republican, very uh, conservative, right-wing, evangelical, Christian Liberty University. And they've teamed up with that uh, hideous initiative, Turning Point USA, so uh, Charlie Kirk, to create the Falkirk Centre. And the idea is to create a new think tank to promote faith and liberty on college campuses. And recently they've been hosting a uh, China Freedom Summit and Steve Bannon's been broadcasting War Room Pandemic from there. Are the Falun Gong involved in this as well? Yeah, interestingly, although Bannon and Falun Gong are like gums and teeth, as you say in Chinese, they haven't seemed to have made appearance at the Evangelical Liberty University event although they themselves uh, do work very closely with evangelical uh, Christians, anti-China evangelical Christians in the US. So Falun Gong haven't made an appearance. A number of retired generals, uh, senators, particularly Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, these are China hawks um, from the Republicans. They've turned up, and of course Steve Bannon himself. And in fact, when um, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, was held up in traffic, Steve Bannon got to do the sort of fill-in patter until he came on stage. I have to say that man could talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles. <laughs> he's, he's pretty experienced at blabbing on. Is this a recent pivot on Bannon's behalf, or has he always had a a thing for the CCP? Right. So Bannon himself has had a big interest in China for a long time from when he was actually in the Navy himself. And I noticed many years ago when he was still at Breitbart, before Breitbart became very slick, I don't know if you remember, it was a bit sort of scrappy, actually, at the start. It evolved out of a blog, yeah? Yeah, and it was really bloggish, and then it really got uh, really spruced up to look slick. So in those early days... They had, you remember Pamela Geller, mm-hmm. um, the anti-Muslim person, and they also had Falun Gong on there. And I remember thinking back in the time, why would Falun Gong be on this blog? And then I realized it was basically, you know, fits into the general idea that anything that's um, anti-left or anti-politically uh, correct, they're going to foster. And so given that they were attacking leftists and uh, communists or communist sympathisers, something that's so anti, anti, uh, anti-communist anti as the Falun Gong would fit into their remit. So then a while after that, uh, you know, Bannon went off and he was with Trump and then that didn't end well. And then he was sort of off on his own in this wilderness. And then suddenly Falun Gong themselves really, really lifted up their media game. And they are everywhere. Just about any kind of anti-China story that you see, there's a Falun Gong connection. And then Bannon was very closely working with them. So whether or not Bannon helped them to lift their game, it's hard to know. But from 2017, Bannon has been closely associated with Miles Guo or Guo Wenguei, the Chinese billionaire in exile. And he's put millions and millions of dollars into this. So this is, you know, Steve Bannon's bread and butter at this point. 
he's got this billionaire who doesn't speak very good English who wants to bring down the CCP. And so Bannon, particularly from the middle of last year in the Hong Kong protests, has been, you know, very, very much up in this China stuff. So Falun Gong's been going around building up the anti-China forces in uh, Washington and New York. They team up with anybody who hates the CCP, so they've teamed up with a lot of evangelical Christians and senators. But they've also got support from both sides. So they've had uh, Elizabeth Warren from the Democrats, as well as some of these uh, China hawks like Tom Cotton from the Republicans sponsor something in the Congress, which is a resolution to support Falun Gong and to protect them from persecution. So they've done a very good job in the last 20 years of building up their support in Washington and uniting with the wealthy and influential evangelical Christians. So this is the world that Steve Bannon's moving in. And even in the interview with Trump, uh, with Fox on the weekend, he did talk about Steve Bannon in, in okay kind of terms, you know, that, well, you know, Steve's out there, he's not back on the team, but he's doing good work. But it wasn't back to Sweaty Steve or whatever it was he called him. That's right. That's right. So Steve Bannon is definitely up there now. He's he's back on the, on the main stage. He is a very convincing speaker, I think, on this issue. He has, on his pandemic, war room pandemic, he has had many of the influential voices in the China debate in, in America. So, for example, Peter Navarro, who years ago wrote a book called The Coming China Wars, you know, this is like 15 years ago, about 10 years ago, wrote a book called uh, Death by China. You know, he's been a hardcore China hawk for a long time, and he's now got the ear of the Trump administration. So what's the story with uh, Miles Gore? I saw something about him accusing the CCP of paying off the Vatican and Australia to be nice to China. Yeah, look... We're in the world of uh, Chinese high finance and politics craziness here where both sides make outrageous claims about the other and who knows, it could all be true or it could all just be rubbish and we're never really going to find out. I mean, there have been so many court cases backwards and forwards. You know, Roger Stone, recently exonerated, accused Miles Gore of funding Hillary Clinton and then there was a a, you know, case about that which Miles Gore won. So basically the story with him, he's one of these um, uber wealthy Chinese business people, made his money in construction and, you know, property dealing and, and uh, finance wheeling and dealing, but basically being very, very connected to the uh, leaders in China. Had a falling out, things didn't go so well, uh, scuttled off to America in late 2014 was kind of exposed in 2015 in the media in China. And since then, it's just been warfare with the um, Chinese party leadership. So, you know, he really spilled the dirt in 2017. You know, all China watchers were sort of glued to what latest revelation would come out. He's been accused of, you know, paying investigators to dig dirt on people, their children. So we're talking, you know, Chinese government officials and their children and what their children get up to. He has a lot of money, it seems. He's under uh, investigation for... Well, you name it, money laundering, corruption, bribery, fraud, rape. Yeah. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe. I mean, it seems to me pretty odd that China would be bribing the Vatican, but. I also, it also struck me as odd that 
China would need to bribe Australia to, you know, go to bat for China. Well, I have, uh, yeah, look, this is, this is, um, an interesting one, isn't it? Because the China hawk, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, you know, he and another person, retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, you know, they have quite a good point, which is often the voices, the pro-China voices are big business. So in America, um, Spaulding in particular, you know, accuses American big business and particularly finance of speaking for Beijing and supporting Beijing. In the case of Australia, it's been a very conflicted situation where, you know, the backbench of the federal government has a few hardline China hawks and they're trying to push the government into being harder on Chinese interference. Where Labor stands on that might be a different position, but it is a very, very complicated situation. You know, Australia is now making these statements about the South China Sea going into various, you know, military exercises with America and Japan. So, yeah, very complicated situation. In the case of Miles Gore, I mean, his intention, he calls himself CCP killer, and he intends to take down the gangster organization called the Chinese CCP because they're a threat to all human beings. Mm. Um, I, in this context, I also think of uh, someone like Clive Palmer, who, as I understand it, was uh, very much on the China bandwagon until one of his projects fell apart, after which he became very anti-China. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it is because basically he didn't want to give him the money and there's been trouble in that industry. And of course, as we know, Clive himself is in trouble for shifting money from his industries into his political campaign. But that, that's kind of is often the case that you have these, you know, those that are doing business with China, China just want the Australian government to sort out any diplomatic problems and just let's just get on with it. I mean, China still is our biggest trading partner. So in which case then people just want the government to get the politics out of the way. The way that these things work with in relationship with China is that there's some diplomatic problem and then that is taken out into the into industry. So suddenly there will be a problem uh, with imports or there will be a problem with, um, you know, things clearing uh, the docks in China or there will be tariffs suddenly put on various goods. So China uses these kind of economic and trade tools in a political sense, which makes it a really tricky relationship for Australia. Well, we've run out of time for the radio show, but if people want to hear a few more questions with Dr. Kaz Ross, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash Passaran, and this show will go for a little bit longer. Well, that's all we've got time for. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later. I was looking on Twitter earlier this week, and I saw that uh, Drew Pavlou the student from the University of Queensland who I, I think he got suspended for some anti-China or anti-CCP stuff, but uh, he's now being accused of being part of the 50 Cent Army by uh, Chinese people on Twitter. Yeah, so this is this is an interesting one to unpack. Last year there were some pro Hong Kong protest events organised on at University of Queensland. And Drew Pavlo was one of the organisers. And at one of those, the group was set upon by nationalistic patriotic Chinese. And there was, you know, a bit of fisticuffs on both sides. There were people there who were clearly from the Chinese consulate and weren't just students. 
and things just escalated. So Drew kept going with the protests. People kept turning up. Drew it was an elected uh, elected representative of the students on the university council, and so he used that position to call out University of Queensland's relationship with um, China, and in particular the uh, the Chinese Consul General in Queensland, who was an honorary made an honorary member of the university. Uh, he also called out the actions of the Confucius Institute. University of Queensland and accused them of teaching credit attracting courses, which is, it's not a standard thing in Confucius Institutes. Usually they teach language and culture and they do not teach actual core university curriculum. So I'm not clear how accurate his claims are there. So basically Drew then really attached himself to the plight of the Uyghurs who are um, uh, Muslims in the northwest of China who were being subject to a very high level of repression at the moment. So Drew was in battle with the University of Queensland. He wanted the University of Queensland's Vice-Chancellor, Peter Hoy, to move away from China. He was too close to China, been to China many times, and UQ relies on Chinese students. So he himself became a sort of a, a, a face of the Hong Kong movement, uh, the supporting Uyghurs and so on and so forth. However, he has fallen out of grace with a bunch of Chinese, which is because of Miles Guo, actually. So Miles Guo, the Steve Bannon thing, they've announced their, their new foundation, the Himalaya Foundation, and they have the new China Federation. So this is a pol- global political movement of Chinese diaspora aimed at overthrowing the CCP. And they had their launch around the world uh, last month, but this week they had their first activities in Australia. And so there was about 100 people turned up outside the Sydney consulate on Monday and they, you know, they had their banners and they, you know, marched up and down and shouted anti-CCP stuff. Now, they have attracted RV Yemeni as one of their supporters. So Avi has jumped onto the Hong Kong bandwagon from the middle of last year and he's done a few anti-CCP, anti-Chinese government uh, videos. So they did a live stream with Avi, yay, go go for it, said Avi, you know, good on yous. And Drew has called that out. So Drew has said on Twitter, look, Avi Yemeni's convicted of domestic violence, convicted domestic violence um, perpetrator. Uh, He has very dodgy politics. Please do not fall for RV Yemeni. And the people in the Miles Gore's Himalaya movement are saying, no, no, RV's really great. You know, he's an independent journalist. And you, Drew Pavlo, you must be part of the running dogs of the CCP. And um, in fact, didn't you act in some film that was in, you know, Kunming University or I don't know how true any of that is. And that really you're just trying to destroy the movement. So you're part of the 50 cent party. A 50 cent party is a reference to people being paid 50 cents to go online and put pro-China comments. So this is part of the dilemma, right? Like you can't criticize any part of the anti-CCP movement because that makes you CCP. Um, is that 50 cents per post? Uh, theoretically, but I think the rate might have gone up since then. How do we get onto this? Can you send the contact details? Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like forget Soros, they actually do pay. Yeah, China. yeah, wow. yeah. So, so they're known as the fifty cents or the wumao, wumao. You might see them written as that's fifty cents in Chinese. Yeah. 
So you, you, you'd see them around, like you go on any, you know, world newspaper and they have some anti-China thing or some comment about China doing something wrong. And immediately there are people with some pretty, um, interesting grammar and spelling getting on there saying how great China is. And you know, they're just sort of warm have just clicked in for the day and they're doing their shift. So Drew's been accused of that. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. He seems to have quite good support from the Uyghur community in Australia, from what I can observe. He was actually, as you were saying, he was actually suspended from university for one semester, but he's challenging that. Hong Kong has obviously emerged as a flashpoint. I understand uh, Arvi Yemeni, who we were discussing earlier, travelled to Hong Kong in order to produce uh, propaganda. What was his reception? And do you, I, I understand he's now, I guess, been adopted by the, the Himalaya Foundation. Um, I understand at the time when he was in Hong Kong, he was associated with uh, the Tommy Robinson uh, propaganda network. Has there been a realignment on uh, Yemeni's part from one to the other? What's your um, understanding of what's going on? He's still posting through the Tommy Robinson Propaganda Network, as you so aptly name it, um, and he's posting his anti-Chinese government stuff through them. When he was in Hong Kong, it's really interesting. There were a number of uh, people in Hong Kong who were intending to call him out, and in fact, they accuse him of running away from a fight. I think there's a, there's the useful, there's a useful expression in Chinese, which is called sniffing after foreigners' farts. And that expression is where you get legitimacy by having a non-Chinese person, by having a foreigner on your side. And I think that's what we see with Avi Yemeni, that, you know, he's latched onto the Hong Kong thing. The people in the Hong Kong movement don't really understand. They don't really know his politics. But, yeah, hey, here's somebody who's supporting us. Um, he's also, Avi has been promoted by the Falun Gong as well as an independent journalist of Australia. And they've actually used some of his material on Hong Kong and translated it into Chinese and that as well. So I think he's still with Tommy Robertson. That's probably still paying the bills, but he's just pivoting away from maybe South Sudanese crime gangs in Melbourne to the, you know, the, the topic du jour, the Chinese government. There was a protest this week uh, in Sydney, but uh, I think it was last week there was another outside Newtown courthouse, and that was in order to uh, express support for a man who was being charged for performing outside the Chinese consulate, cracking a whip and uh, ranting and raving about um, his uh, you know, uh, dislike for uh, the Chinese Communist Party. That protest outside the courthouse um, was organised by Nick Folks, who also, like Avi, has spent or did spend many years agitating against uh, Muslims and um you know, African gangs and, and so on and so forth, but has recently declared himself to be a, a neo-Nazi. He's embraced uh, Adolf Hitler. So obviously there's all sorts of um, persons in Australia, outside of Australia, who are attracted to um, expressing, you know, uh, opposition to the Chinese Communist Party. What's your understanding of the, and we've referred to Bannon earlier, but what's your understanding of uh, the extreme rights uh, approach to these matters and to the question of China? 
Okay, so in the case of Nick Folks, he's been anti-China and Chinese for quite a long time, I would say. And in the after the coronavirus, he's just using that to, you know, ramp up his brand. You know, he's he's taken a bit of a break from politics for personal reasons, but he has always been opposed to Chinese influence in Australia, particularly in the property market, and I would say actually opposed to Chinese immigration. So that's his, you know, far right and neo-Nazi. Um, understanding that Australia needs to be for Australians and you can't be Australian if you're Chinese. Interestingly, at that whip-cracking protest organised by Nick Folks, there were very, very few people turned up from his side. There were actually more people protesting Nick Folks than there were supporting Nick Folks, but there was an interesting group of people supporting Nick Folks and that was um, Falun Gong practitioners from Sydney. So you might be thinking, why is it that here's a bunch of Chinese people standing next to an actual neo-Nazi in support? Um, but basically their view is unite with all who can be united with. So if you hate the CCP, then we don't care what your politics are. We'll um, stand with you. I think that over the years what I've observed is that whereas the, the far right and neo-Nazis overseas are talking about, uh, you know, they're very anti-Semitic and they're talking about the JQ, the Jew, the Jewish question. What I observed amongst the Australian nativists is an anti-Chinese stance is absolutely fun, um, fundamental to their views. In fact, they talk about Chinese as the yellow Jew mm. and they say that, you know, the yellow Jews need to be thrown out of Australia, that what's wrong with Australia goes right back to the gold rush days. We had that noted um, Nazi in Sydney, Jim um, Salem, Jim Salim, who's constantly going on about Lamming Flat and the riots of Lamming Flat in the gold rush era and the desire there for the miners to throw the Chinese out and to take violence against Chinese. So these neo-Nazis have been talking about the importance of getting rid of Chinese people from Australia for a very long time. It's interesting that in the case of Nick Folks, you know, he's talking about the Communist Party or China's influence. But actually, if you dig deeper, it's really about immigration and keeping Australia white. Not that it is white or ever was white, but they believe that, you know, throwing out the Chinese is, is a big issue. And that's kind of how I got interested in this topic was actually through anti-Chinese racism and seeing all these neo-Nazis really scoring points, really attracting followers by talking about anti-Chinese stuff. So another one that you will remember will be um, from last year when the, the police station in suburban Melbourne in Box Hill uh, actually flew a Chinese flag at the police station for Chinese National Day and uh, two different competing groups of Nazis turned up to protest that. One was associated with the Australia First Party and the Jim Salim. They turned up and had a lacklustre rally. And then uh, Tom Sewell and the Lad Society turned up and gave a, round, you know, a rousing account of how the Anzacs you know, didn't die so that Australia could become taken over by Chinese. So I believe that actually anti-Chinese sentiment is absolutely fundamental to Australian neo-Nazis and far-right. So the Falun Gong are attaching themselves to these sort of far-right groups sort of out of convenience or, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, is it all a one-way street or have we got neo-Nazis, you know, doing stretches in the morning and getting some oh, of the look. benefits of Falun Gong? 
I, I, I think that's a genius idea. I think someone needs to, a Chinese person needs to infiltrate lad society and offer to run morning Falun Gong sessions or something to, you know, improve their physical and mental stamina. I mean, basically, you know, the neo-Nazis, uh, they're, they're white supremacists, right? So they don't really like, uh, yellow and brown people. So I haven't really seen any of them uh, taking up Falun Gong, although of course you know Nick Folks himself has gone vegan and cooked some some pretty mean vegan food from <laughs> his uh, from his blog posts. I have to say, of all the Nazis to go, somebody's place you want to go there for dinner, it'd be Nick Folks's place. He's got some pretty good food going, but uh, yeah, just being a vegan hasn't made him a you know peace loving meditation Falun Gong type person. And so, what's Falun Gong's uh, kind of end game? Because as I understand it, the the movement is uh, criminalised within China. Is that right? Yeah. So Falun Gong arises in out of actually a boom in the 1980s in China of these kind of health practice called qigong. So qigong is gong is like from uh, kung fu, the gong in kung fu, and qi is like your uh, internal and eternal energy, your energy flow. So in the 80s, there was this big move to reinvigorate these ancient Chinese medicine practices, such as cultivating your qi or doing tai chi in the park and doing exercises, and qigong is one of those. And so Li Hongzhi is uh, called Master Li. Li Hongzhi invented his own form of Qigong. He made it very, very simple, five very simple exercises. And by the mid-90s, it was absolutely huge in China. There were hundreds of people getting up at 4 a.m. to go and do it in the park. It was considered to be something very good for your health. So a lot of retired people did it and elderly people did it. Uh, people all over society, Communist Party members, government members, everybody did it, Falun Gong. And he kind of started writing his own doctrine and his own theories about it. Uh, by the mid-90s, he was starting to run a bit uh, foul with the Chinese government because they don't like alternative political organizations and big groups following leaders. And he was getting thousands and thousands of followers. So he took off to America. And then in the next couple of years, the movement was started to get cracked down on by the government. And so they made this move, which I don't even know why they did it. But over 10,000 of them just turned up in Beijing and they stood in silent meditation around the party leaders' headquarters. So if you're trying to convince the party, hey, we're not a threat, we're not really organising anything and we're just all peaceful, do not bring 10,000 people secretly to Beijing to show the, the you know your power level. So, of course, the government cracked down on them and made them illegal and then heavily persecuted them. So many people fled overseas if they could. People were locked up. They go through re-education where the government's trying to change their thinking. And then in the 2000s, uh, Falun Gong started um, making these claims about organ harvesting. That's the kind of their, their signature issue, which is that Falun Gong prisoners were having their organs harvested. Now, it is true that in Chinese thinking, you wouldn't really donate your organs after death. The idea is to keep your body whole, and so you might be condemned to be a hungry ghost if you die and your, your body wasn't complete. So they don't have a tradition of, you know, that would allow for organ transplants. So they use political prisoners or actually just prisoners. Once you were a prisoner in jail, your body no longer belongs to you, it belongs to the state. 
and so it's considered a useful use of prisoners to use their organs. A big industry developed out of this in the 2000s were people travelling to China paying a lot of money to get organs. So the, that whole organ thing has been reformed. However, Falun Gong is still claiming that they are particularly targeted for their organs, that they're harvested while they're alive and so on and so forth. I think some of those claims are a bit overblown. So yes, they are very strongly controlled in China. They're, they're a banned group. They're considered an evil cult, uh, partly because they believe that if you do Falun Gong properly, you no longer need to take medicine because Falun Gong will save you. So people die from preventable um, causes because they just don't take their medicine and then they die. And Falun Gong says that if you criticize them on these grounds, then you must be part of the evil CCP. So if you challenge the organ transplanting things, evil CCP. If you say, well, look, you know, you shouldn't stop people taking their medicine. They say, we never said that, you're evil CCP. It's a very polarized area. If you criticize the Chinese government, the Chinese government calls you being racist. If you criticize Falun Gong, then they accuse you of being Chinese government pro-CCP and so on and so forth. Very, very polarized debate. So, so their end game is actually bringing down the CCP. That's their end game. So they call the coronavirus the CCP virus and they've tried to get um, Trump and the Trump administration to call it that. They just call it the China virus. But, of course, Falun Gong being mostly Chinese people, they're not keen on that. They want it to be called the CCP virus, and they want to blame the CCP for that. So that's their end game. bring down the CCP. So do they advocate that uh, the, the virus was created in a laboratory? Are they yes. one of those? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They are. So you'll see that actually when you watch the Bannon's War Room pandemic, you'll see a range of views on that. But basically the mildest version of that is that communist China covered up the virus. Uh, communist China lied. 600,000 people died and that they, you know, they didn't crack down on it because they wanted to destroy America or they wanted to destroy the world. So that that's some, you know, and, and then the most extreme views are, yes, it came out of a lab. It was released on purpose. It's to bring down America as a uh, prosperous country. Obviously, the, the Falun Gong is very much, uh, well, wants to, I guess, overthrow the Chinese Communist Party, which presumably helps to explain their general a kind of, I guess, anti-leftism? Is it just really about, is their main concern simply opposition to the Chinese Communist Party or is this, this part of a more developed uh, ideology? And how would you situate them in terms of a, let's say, a left-right spectrum? Yeah, look, I think, I think the thing with Falun Gong is that on the surface, they just look like a blend of Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism tied up in Chinese medicine health practice. And probably for many, many, many of Falun Gong practitioners, that's all it is. It's just a health thing that you do, right? But when you go deeper and deeper into the, the theories of uh, Li Hongzhi, they're against science, they're against evolution, they're against homosexuality. They have a lot of these, you know, beliefs about sexual misconduct or moral behavior. You can actually find those in Buddhism. So that's not actually so extreme. They also have, uh, there's some belief in aliens, demons and aliens that are influencing the planet. So when you're really in Falun Gong, you get down to that deep level. For most practitioners, it would be a health thing. And then there's this whole rather traditional Buddhist morality underneath it, I think. And so in which case then they not, they would not support gay, lesbian, queer rights. 
they, on those sorts of issues, they'd be very, very socially conservative. So I don't think there's a general a political view. They say that they're not political and they stay away from politics, that they're just a personal religion that's peaceful. They just want to do their thing and not be persecuted by the CCP. So their way of of engaging in politics is through producing an enormous amount of anti-Chinese material and drawing attention to the problems in China and influencing policymakers, and they've been very successful in the US with that. I want to hear more about the aliens and demons. Is 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 that the is that the sort of area where they're finding common cause with like the Christian conservative right in the states? Well, this is, this is a good question because you have to be, you know, deep in the Falun Gong thinking before you get access to the aliens. You can't just sort of, you know, chapter one, the aliens came. Um, what I did hear from someone was that the aliens, I think they take the form of lizards. I think there's a lizard alien thing going on. So I did hear from someone that their theory was it was when Master Lee went to America that the alien lizard aliens got introduced to Falun Gong. So whether that was some kind of, you know, overlap with some of the other religions in America, I don't really know. Did he attend a um, David Icke uh, marathon session or something? Yeah, met John Travolta. I don't know. But, um, but you know, I think sort of alien lizard people is a bit of a thing. So, But in general, you know, Falun Gong, they do have – a weird version of this sort of Qigong Buddhism thing going on. It is, it's Li Hongzhu's own, own version of it. And he himself is like a cult leader because he can see into the minds of the Falun Gong practitioners and he can directly, you know, over a huge distance affect your energy and, and, um, how the qi is moving in your body. So there's a whole supernatural kind so of element. Very useful skill to have, I imagine. Well, if he can do that, why hasn't he wiped out the Chinese party leadership? That's what I'd like to know. I mean, well, that, that's the sort of thing a, a CCP, CCP stooge would say, Kaz. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> where's my fifty cents? You know, <laughs> that's what I want. I want a dollar for that <laughs> one. Um, you know, like back in the day, there were these Qigong masters having, 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 um, you know, Qigong. Uh, battles, you know, across cities. It was the Qigong levitation battle, you know, from one city to the next city and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, there's some pretty out there beliefs about it. So, you know, is Falun Gong an evil cult? Well, they do have a leader who has some pretty extraordinary uh, capabilities, which tends to fit into sort of cult thinking. On the whole, though, they don't really go around harassing people unless those people are anti-Falun Gong, and in which case then they will harass you. So they've driven some people to desperation because those people have spoken out against Falun Gong and then Falun Gong have just haunted them, followed them, harassed them, tried to get them sacked, you know, contacted their their institutions and, you know, where they work and that kind of thing. Is there a succession plan? Like, is, is there a... Beyond the, the leader, are there others waiting in the wings so that, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is would, would the uh, Falun Gong collapse uh, should the leader uh, pass away? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess the first question is would you know if the leader passed away? Is it going to be one of those scenarios where, you know, it's all he's living in his secret compound in upstate New York and um, you don't really know? I mean, he has children, I understand, so whether they've got the chi chops 
to take over. I don't really know. Yeah, it's it's a hard one. I mean, the thing is that it's great that people want to get out in the park and do health exercises and do it as a group of meditation. I mean, it's all for that kind of thing. But it doesn't just stop there. So people become very caught up in the whole thing. You know, their whole lives become about Falun Gong and having to attend meetings and to produce newsletters and to distribute newsletters and to sell tickets for their little Shen Yun show that travels around the dancing China, splendid China thing. So, you know, you do get caught up in it. You can't just turn up on a Saturday, do an hour and then kind of go home. So it's, yeah. it's a bit like being a, a member of a, a small Trotskyist organisation then. Is that, <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> Yeah, they do have tens of millions of of members, though. So oh, well, there you go. <laughs> might differentiate out there, but yeah, you know, they're true believers. They're true believers. And look, to not to not downplay the actual persecution that many Falun Gong people in China have gone through, it must be truly horrendous. You know, the sort of pressure they're put on by the government. The thing about China is that they actually believe in changing people's thinking. So they don't just lock you up for thought crimes and then you can just keep thinking whatever you like. They actually actively try to change your thinking. So they want you to be reformed. And so therefore that, you know, comes in that whole level of mental and psychological suffering where you have to renounce what you believe in. And that, you know, that's what's facing the Uyghurs, um, the Muslims in northwest China as well. They're not just... Uh, stopped from going to the mosque or following Ramadan and fasting or not eating pork or not drinking alcohol or men growing their beards. They're not just stopped from all of that. Their actual thinking is supposed to be reformed. So I, I do have some sympathy for Falun Gong practitioners who've been through that re-education process. It must have been horrific. Uh, we've probably got time for one last question, Andy. You should ask it, Cam. What would, what, Maybe a- what would you like the last question to be, Kaz? A happy um, note, perhaps. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I guess what I'd like to know from you two is, I mean, what do you think of the China debates and the, the place of China and Chinese in the far right and the neo-Nazi movement in Australia and generally? You know, how, how do you see it kind of playing out? Because I don't see very many people talking about it. And I just wonder if it's because I'm really attuned to the anti-Chineseness. Everybody talks about the JQ, but I don't sort of hear the, you know, the CQ or the CQ um, coming out. I think the well, you're certainly right. I mean, that the anti-Chinese sentiment has deep roots, and maybe that explains why. I mean, you know, when you were discussing uh, Jim Salim earlier and the, uh, you know, it being one of his. Uh, a bit, you know, uh, staples of his ideology uh, in the 1980s uh, when National Action was functioning. Uh, it was anti-Chinese, certainly, uh, but it was also directed against uh, all Asian uh, persons. So, you know, stop the Asian invasion was the slogan that they attempted to popularise. And it may have been that in that case, you know, I don't know that many of their uh, partisans would have been able to distinguish Asian, Chinese, whatever, they're all the same sort of thing. If they're not white, they're not right. They've got to get out. But they are consciously attempting to draw upon that historical tradition and also associating it with mainstream Australian politics. You know, uh, Jim Salim's party and others of that ilk can, with some justification, point to uh, many aspects of modern Australian political practice to justify their own uh, political commitments. So, and, and, and also, um, as a, 
it's, it's difficult to divide from, I guess, a nationalistic question. And I think some of the, maybe there's some distinction between, you know, the Jewish question on the so-called Jewish question on the one hand and the Chinese question on the other. Maybe the, the so-called Chinese question is beginning to develop some aspects of the Jewish question in the sense that China has become or is understood to become a, a global power. So it's not just about Australia is not just under threat from this specific threat from, you know, this part of the world that is China. Uh, China has developed as a power and it's become a global power. And in that sense, it approximates what the, the anti-Semitic understanding of the Jewish question, which is that it's a global power, which is seeking to destroy, you know, uh, which is seeking to extend its tentacles right across the globe. So I think maybe there's beginning to be a shift in understanding of, you know, the Chinese question in ways that approximate, uh, you know, long-standing understandings of the um, Jewish question. And, and the other thing I'd say is that the, the kind of, I guess, what may be happening in contemporary debates is some of those uh, reservoirs of uh, racist, sent, racist sentiment are being drawn upon um, and being, being brought back to life. So it exists in the same way that anti-Semitism does. It's kind of just below the surface. And it doesn't take much to kind of reinvoke it. And when it is, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the kind of depth of this uh, racist sentiment. Well, I think uh, you might be giving these thinkers a little bit too much credit. Well, I'm not saying that this is like, <laughs> this is not always uh, fully articulated. I, I think it's more, it is more sentiment than it is in some respects. It's, yeah, it, probably more sentiment than, than ideology, I suppose. In many cases. I'm just reminded of one regular correspondent that I have. He sends me his anti-Semitic newsletters and he would explain to you that the Chinese are actually just Jews. Ah, right. Okay. In disguise. I think it's, I think that's an excellent point, actually, Andy. I think you're right on it with the China as a global power. And I guess what I'd add to that is we can't escape the fact that the very foundation of Australia like Federation itself, was um, heavily um, infused with an anti-Chinese sentiment around cheap labour and fears of infection and disease and gambling and um, that kind of stuff. So that in the last uh, couple of decades of the 19th century, there was a big anti-Chinese push across the political spectrum in Australia. And I'm just aware of the fact that at the at Federation itself, when the Chinese citizens, you know, of Melbourne wanted to put up the Federation arch and join into Federation celebrations, they were pretty swiftly told, you know, you have your own, you're not part of our Federation. And so in actual fact, these Australian nativists are sort of going back to this very uh, rich seam of anti-Chinese sentiment in Australian politics. Then it goes way back before Pauline Hanson, right back to actually, you know, 1901 and before. I think there's also the, the kind of, well, I was going to describe it as being a physical dimension, but in, in the racist imaginary, there's this, uh, you know, um, evil destructive presence to the north that threatens to kind of uh, flow down into Australia and, and, and swamp. Yeah, that's it. Queensland, isn't it? Wasn't that Queensland? <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite. But, but when um, Hanson further north, about, yeah. speaks about being swamped, there's this kind of implicit understanding on the part of many, you know, especially uh, non-Indigenous white Australians, that this is a, mm. a relatively speaking, a, a tiny population. So there's even more emphasis being placed upon 
border control upon there being constructed some kind of fortress in this part of the world, which is understood to be a very hostile environment. And so it also gives uh, credence to an especially militaristic form of nationalist sentiment where it's about, um, you know, and deeply xenophobic, um, especially with regards to our neighbours to the north. So, yeah, I mean, there is that. And, and, and there's a kind of, I mean, I think on the, but the sentiment isn't, you know, uniform, obviously. And I think when we were talking earlier about someone like uh, Clive Palmer, he's, like many other business figures, I think, quite ideologically flexible. So, you know, China's wonderful one moment. It's, you know, uh, it's the devil the next. And it's very much, and I think there's some sense in which, uh, white nationalists like, uh, Salim and others, they're able, with some degree of justice, uh, I guess, or justification, we're the real nationalists because we're not, we don't care about, you know, business relations with China or the fact that it's, you know, uh, you know, our largest export market or whatever. We're the real deal. We don't care about the consequences. This is about our nation and our race. And that's far more important than, you know, whatever temporary vacillations might be expressed by people like uh, Palmer. So, th- and it also works to a kind of uh, nominal egalitarianism as well. Where they, 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 they decry both foreign racial elements, but also want to kind of construct a vision of Australia that, that did inspire much of the labour movement in the late 19th and early 20th century, where it was not just about creating a new land or a new, finding some uh, living room in this part of the world for the, the, the white race or the British race, but doing so in a way that was also meant to create some kind of new egalitarian order. And that's the kind of thing they're also trying to draw upon, where it's not just you know, opposition to the, the Chinese presence in Australia, but some kind of notion of relative equality among white men in this part of the world. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there, Andy, because um, one of the one of the interesting things that seems to be motivating someone like Nick Folks is the idea that Chi- Chinese are very good at capitalism and that uh, creating an unequal situation here in Australia because they're taking land or they're taking property or they're taking over. And it's because they're sort of somehow super clever at that kind of thing. So that's another parallel with the sort of the JQ and the intelligence. You know, they're always going on about the intelligence of the Ashkenazi Jew or whatever. And in that way, it's kind of a bit parallel. And so I think I think that's why the Australian nativist movement really just constantly harks back to the time of Henry Lawson or these sorts of uh, Henry Parks or these sorts of figures, you know, this this um, utopian dream that they see has not been realised in Australia. And that certainly seems to be what motivates the types of um, like Lad Society and Tom Saul. I think the other function of those sorts of figures like uh, Lawson and, and so on, um, in the in the kind of... Uh, you know, as they're presented now, a lot of that uh, quite bit of racist sentiment is shorn from those figures. That's been uh, disavowed, whereas Salim and all the, the other characters, they're saying, no, <laughs> you know, this was a critical part of their ideology yeah. and their literary expressions. We can't forget it. And no, we're not going to let you simply rehabilitate these figures as wonderful storytellers or whatever. These were politically committed men and writers who had a broader vision and we're not going to let go of that. In fact, we're going to try and do our best to ensure that not only their literary works, but their political commitments remain current. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, just on the question, I know, Cam, that you want to finish up. <laughs> and so um, I just thought I'd share with Andy an observation from the Sovsit movement about the Anzacs speaking about sort of mythology. And I was, I was one, you know, wondering about the, um, these particular bunch of sovereign citizens who were going on about the importance of the Trinity the religious trinity, you know, which is, you know, the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost, right? And they explained it, uh, which was, it goes like this, God, the Father, is the Anzac, and we are the sons of Anzac, and the Holy Ghost is the spirit of Anzac. And so we have this, the Anzacs are mapped onto this sort of religious view of the world and uh, that's sort of an underpinning of a particular bunch of the sovereign citizens. So, um, yeah, I mean, what do you think of that? The, uh, the the Holy Spirit of Anzac has finally been revealed. Anzac Catholicism. That's it. I'm inspired. Yeah, inspired. Where do I sign up? I think that's you have to sign up to one of the kings. Cam might remember which king it is, the true king or the other not-so-true king. I'm not yeah, sure. don't, and don't get it wrong. Yeah, don't get that wrong. But just make sure you've got your right copy of the Constitution and the Magna Carta and you'll be fine. I think as long as we have kings, we'll be right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and here I was thinking this was an anarchist podcast. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> what well, depends who the king is, you see. <laughs> yeah. I'm flexible like Clive Palmer. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Kaz. Yeah, it was fun. It was good. And there's a lot of China stuff still to be said. And let's keep an eye on the various, um, you know, sniffing after foreigner farts <laughs> in the Chinese movement and see which farty foreigners <laughs> come to the fore.
up and just rattle down the street. Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a fuss is a crowdsourced craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. (laughs) 